0: You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Tonight, we wanna look at how God works in us. And remember, last week we were in Philippians chapter one, and we did a little introduction about Paul and his life and also how this church at Philippi came to be. This week, we want to shift gears and talk about God's good work in us. He starts in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you, in all my prayers for you all, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So, one of the things that you'll notice is the all-inclusive nature of God's good work in us. And really, there are three stages to this good work. There is the past work, the present work, and the future work. Paul begins by saying, he who began a good work in you. Notice that this is talking about our past. God says that the way that we can begin a relationship with him is by acknowledging and believing that he sent his son Jesus to come and die for us. And the way that we come into a relationship with him is simply by placing our trust in what he has done. John 1.12 says, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God. So it's simply by receiving the gift that Jesus has purchased on the cross that God is able to start this relationship with us. And once we come into this relationship, it's not like God is sort of waiting for us to screw up and then decides that he's going to abandon us. Or that at some point, because of some mistake, we might lose our salvation. Instead, in Hebrews 13, verse 5, God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we have this security that even though we have this relationship with God, there's nothing that we can do to out our way out of God's grace. God has paid not only for the past things that we've done, but the present things that we are doing and the future things that we will do. God has covered all of that in Jesus Christ. So we have tremendous security in our relationship with God. We don't have to worry that when we go to him, when we spend time with him, that we have to sit there and apologize for all the things that we've done wrong. Instead, we can come in to our time with God and simply relate to him the way he wants. And what happens is that God says that we actually join his family when we receive Christ. And just like a family member who decides to rebel against his or her parents, maybe even decides that he doesn't want to talk to his parents for several years, that doesn't change the fact that he is still a son or that she is a daughter. And likewise, there are times where we struggle, times where we are unfaithful to God. And yet he never abandons us. We're still a part of his family. So that's the past work that God has done in us. That, that is the good work that he began. Then he says he will carry it out into completion. So this talks about the present work that God does in us. That when we come into relationship with God in the same way that we receive Christ, it's through faith that we actually grow spiritually. God wants to change your character and transform you. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 29, for those who foreknew, God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the likeness of his son Jesus. So one of the things that God wants to do is he wants to transform you so that you become more like Jesus. A lot of us, came into a relationship with God with a lot of baggage. We had addictions. We had past trauma in our lives that caused us to feel like we can't trust people, that we can't be vulnerable. We've done things that have damaged not only ourselves, but also the people around us. We've learned strategies to be able to keep people at arm's length because we can't trust them. And one of the things that you'll notice is that In all of our attempts to try to change ourselves, it almost seems like we take one step forward and then three steps back. You ever feel that way? There's this frustration of trying to change yourself. It almost feels like you're trying to lift yourself up by your bootstraps. It doesn't really work. So what happens is a lot of times we end up just giving up. Or we end up pretending like we have our lives together when inwardly we know we have all these problems. Or maybe what we've done is we have put external controls on our lives and we're able to manage these problems that way. But inwardly, we realize these problems, these desires, these impulses consume us. You see, God doesn't want to do a superficial fixing of your problems. He wants to transform you from the inside out. This is what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, it's as God transforms our desires, it's as he transforms our values, that then our behavior starts to change slowly over time. In the same way that if you put a, a bridle on a horse or a bit, you can direct this powerful animal with something so small. In the same way, God is able to change our behavior, our actions, by transforming the way that we see the world, the way that we think. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I had a lot of problems with my anger. And this was a long-standing issue in my life. And it turns out that once you come to Christ, it's not like your problems magically disappear. One of the most frustrating things about my anger problem was that as I tried to draw close to people, I found that my anger would flare up and I would damage that relationship. One particular time, I remember I was watching a movie with a number of my Christian roommates and we were sort of messing around with each other, roasting each other during the movie. And partway through the movie, all of my roommates just started like ripping on me, right? And I don't know if you have spent any time with me, but I'm pretty thick-skinned. It's not like I'm just, I'm easily offended. But this, this took place for about two hours, where they were just burning me the whole night long. And finally, I, was, I just got so angry that I stormed upstairs to my room. I turned on the lights, and I grabbed this, the nearest lamp, and I just threw it up against the wall. Little did I know, my roommate was in there asleep, now, from my roommate's perspective, they were downstairs, and it was really somber because they knew that I was upset because I stormed upstairs, and they said that all they heard was something crash, and they heard faint crying upstairs. My roommate had this weird thing where anytime something startled him in the middle of the night, he would just start crying like, Ooh. <laughs> Well, it was really frustrating because there were times where I would try to serve people, and it seemed like within an instant I would damage all of my credibility and undo all of the investment that I had made in this relationship. And it seemed like I had tried everything. I tried to really put all of my willpower into changing, and yet it only lasted for a short period of time before eventually I went back to my old ways. So at one point, I came to a place where I just was ready to surrender before God and say, I don't know what else to do. I've got this problem and I cannot fix it. And so I decided to give this area uh, of my life over to God and something amazing started to happen. I started to gain realizations about why I had these anger flare-ups. Turns out that there were underlying issues in my life that was causing this that I felt like people didn't respect me and I was insecure about that. And so whenever I felt like people were disrespecting me, flare-ups were a way to try to regain control and to try to get people to respect me out of fear. And what God was able to show me was, you don't have to worry about what people think. That what matters is your identity that I have given to you, that you are my son, and it doesn't matter whether people value you or whether they hold you in high esteem. I care about you and I hold you in high esteem. And that really worked in, try, in helping me to gain a sense of security and not worrying about what other people think. So that's what happens is that God starts to work internally. He starts to transform our thinking. And then slowly over time, we start to see that our lives start to change. Now... You need to know that this process is going to take time, and this is ever more true at a time in our, our world where everybody is really impatient. We struggle with patience. We, we hate waiting for things. We want things instantly. I mean, some of us get really angry when we have to wait for five minutes at a Starbucks drive through Some of us get really furious when our internet connection is really slow while we're gaming or while we're on social media. And so it's going to be really difficult for us to withstand this process where God is going to work for months and years to change this problem in our lives. I remember I used to feel a lot of frustration about this, that I wasn't making enough progress soon enough. And I remember reading this book called The Green Letters by Miles Stanford, And one chapter in particular was very helpful in helping me have some expectation for how long this is going to take. He quotes this author, A.H. Strong, where he says, Growth is not a uniform thing in a tree or in a Christian. In some single months, there is more growth than all the year besides. During the rest of the year, however, there is solidification without which the green timber would be useless. So, what you'll see is that your spiritual growth isn't like this steady pattern of growth. That sometimes you'll experience incredible moments of growth or periods of growth, and then there's this solidification process that just drives us nuts. Because it feels like nothing is happening, and yet God is solidifying the change that he has made in our lives. And one of the realizations I needed to, to come to was... It took about 10 or 15 years to completely screw up my life. Did I really expect that God was going to fix it in about two months? By contrast, you'll see that some teach that you actually can attain spiritual maturity through a dramatic experience. You think about Eastern religions like Buddhism and through contemplation and meditation. What happens is you have a moment of enlightenment, And at that moment, everything changes. You start to have a different perspective on the world. You think about some Christian circles where there's this idea that you need to have a crisis experience where you come to terms with your own sin. And in that moment, you surrender to God. And at that point, he heals you and he fixes you for good. And yet, when we compare that to what we see in Scripture... There are numerous biblical characters who were very faithful throughout the course of their lives and yet faltered at points. That fits with my experience. And that really fits with this passage where it seems like God is saying that this process doesn't happen overnight. It's something that's going to take place gradually. And for those of us who have this expectation that God is going to fix us overnight, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment and disillusionment when that doesn't happen. And then he says that all of this is going to take place until the day of Christ Jesus. That one day when you enter God's presence, either when you die or when Jesus returns, that in an instant of time, God is going to transform you completely. And that you will be conformed to the image of Jesus that he'll give you this new body, that he will fix all of those problems that you've had in your life, that all of those insecurities, all of that doubt is just going to melt away. It's going to be gone. And we get to look forward to that when God completes this future work. So there you see it's a past work, a present work, and a future work that God is working in us. Now, Paul says that we should be confident of this. And some commentators, some biblical scholars say the reason why the Philippians should be confident of God's work in them is because of their faithfulness. If you look at verse 5, where it says that they were partnering in the gospel. But if you've ever read the New Testament, you realize that God's work is never contingent on our past faithfulness. It's always contingent upon his future faithfulness toward us. It's never about what we do, but it's about what he does in us. And so, I believe the confidence that we have is that God is committed to us, that He wants to work in us. Well, you might say, what about the Christian in fellowship who hasn't changed over several years or, in some cases, decades? Well, I mean, that's possible. Some people would doubt whether or not this person's even a Christian, and yet, What we see is that there are periods of time, even in our own lives, where we are refusing to listen to God in a certain area, where we have a controversy with God, and that actually slows the progress in our spiritual growth. As the Chinese Christian author Watchman Nee says, there's no way to speed up the spiritual progress God is doing in your life, but there's certainly a way to slow it down. And what you'll see sometimes in people's lives is that they may refuse over a large span of their lives, but if they're truly a believer in Christ, if they have a genuine relationship with God, then maybe what their spiritual growth is going to look like is different from most people, where it's sort of like a Windows update. You know, you're hanging at 12% for a few minutes and then boom, like that, and in an instant it goes to 100%. Well, when you look at this promise that God gives to us, there are often common lies that we believe. When God says, I'm committed to growing you spiritually, I'm committed to transforming your life. One common lie that we believe is, I'm so messed up, I'll never change. I've done so many things in my life. How could God possibly change me? And yet, when we... Say something like this to God. We often think that we're being humble, but really that's not a posture of humility. It's a position of arrogance. If God says, I am powerful and I am committed to changing your life because I care about you, and we say, I'm so messed up that I'll never be able to change no matter what you do, what are we saying? That God is incapable of doing something. It's it's unbelief that's driving this. And what we need to come to terms with is that when we put forward these self-deprecating statements to God, we're not really being self-deprecating, we're depreciating God's power and his ability to change us. William R. Newell puts this succinctly where he says, to be discouraged is unbelief as to God's purpose and plan, and blessing for your life. Let that sink in. To be discouraged is unbelief as to God's purpose and plan of blessing for you. Another thing you might hear is, they're so messed up, they'll never change. The reality is, when you're a part of a community like this, there's a lot of great things, like the love that you share with people, the closeness that you can have, the fact that you can be vulnerable with people and because we're all under grace, we can feel the sense of security that we're not going to be judged by others. But the reality is being a part of a community like this is messy because people's lives are messy. Our lives are messy. And it's easy sometimes to feel like the people that we are trying to help out They are just obstinate. They're refusing to to listen to God. And it's easy for us to want to give up on them. And yet, if God is committed to this person's life, then we need to combat this lie. God is just as much involved and at work in this person's life as he is in your life. And just because you can't see the kind of progress that he's making in their life doesn't mean it's not happening at all. I mean, who are we to write off this person and hold them in contempt when God says, I care about this person and I haven't given up on them? That's not our place. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to endlessly invest in this person spiritually if they are refusing to listen to God. But that's totally different from saying, this person's hopeless, they'll never change, or refusing to pray for them. He says in verse 7 and 8, It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. Whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify for how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. One thing you'll notice if you study the, the New Testament letters that Paul wrote is just the kind of tender emotions that he shares with his audience and the people that he's writing to. And that's a little bit different for uh, for us because I think sometimes it's easy for us to envision Paul the Apostle as this driven, brilliant, tough guy that he could withstand anything. There's this one there's this one situation where Paul and one of his companions goes into this city in, in Macedonia called Lystra, and the mob grab him, take him out outside of the city gates, and beat him until they think he's dead. And then all the gathers all the believers gather around him because they thought he had died, and then he just reanimates. Like T1000 in the Terminator, and just marches back into the city. And you're like, this guy is tough. I mean, he's just phased, it seems like he's not phased by anything at all. As the old saying goes, it's impossible to bru- bruise a brown banana. You know, this guy, he could handle anything. And so I think sometimes when we look at Paul, we think of him as this guy who's impervious. And yet, one of the things you'll notice is that he was extremely tender. He was extremely compassionate. He showed so much affection in his letters. And one of the things that you will notice to greater and greater degrees as you grow in your your spiritual maturity is that God will actually make you a more tender and loving person. You know, for some of us, that's a little bit awkward. We don't we don't like to tell people that we love them, that we care about them, we just like to show them. Right? We're there. I'm loyal to you. You should know that. I don't have to tell people I love them. And yet, one of the things that God wants us to do is He wants us to push ourselves to express how we really feel because. The reality is when we tell somebody that we've invested in for years, I love you, we're speaking the truth. What we're saying fits with reality. He says in verses 9 through 11, he says, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So he says that his prayer is for the Philippians to grow in love, that it may abound more and more. And when you think about the Christian life, God wants to grow us in love. That is the primary characteristic that you should identify with a Christian, is that they are a loving person. Not that they are an extremely moral person, not that they are a super righteous person, but that they're actually a loving person. I'm certain that if we encounter Jesus today, that would have been the one thing that we would have taken away, is that he was incredibly loving. And So this is something that God wants to develop in us over time. As one Christian author puts it, if you want to gauge the progress of somebody's spiritual maturity, look at the way that they treat others. I know when I first came around, one of the things that really drew me to this church was the fact that there was an awesome community. I loved the fact that I could be myself as weird and as messed up as I was, and nobody was going to judge me for that. But what also really intrigued me and captivated me about this group was the fact that I could actually play a part in a bigger plan that God has for the world. That my life could actually be a part of something bigger than myself. That was very appealing to me. And yet, I started to take my identity from being the kind of person who made a difference. And I remember one of my friends, one of my roommates pulled me aside and said, I think it's really awesome that you want to be a doer for God, but the thing that you're missing is love. And that really, that, that really stood out to me, that God was actually speaking through him and identifying a problem that I had. And I guess, you know, the question is, how can you tell if you're actually growing into a loving person, right? Right. How would you know? Well, I think one way would be that people are giving you unsolicited positive feedback that they feel loved by you, right? The the reality is if you're a loving person, people are going to feel loved by you. If you walked up to a friend of yours and said, hey, do you think I'm a loving person? They're like, (laughs) sure, sure. If their first reaction is laughter, that's probably a bad sign. I remember sometime later, somebody came up to me, a younger Christian, and was like, I don't, I don't know what it is about you, but I noticed that it seems like you really love and care about people. I was a little bit confused. It was one of those situations where, you know, somebody off in the distance is waving at you, and then you look behind like, me? Me? And I felt that way because day after day, month after month, year after year of struggling with, with having a hard time loving people, I didn't really notice the work that God was doing in my life. Now, I'm not saying that I'm the most loving person that anyone's ever met, but I've changed a lot over the years, and God can change you to become more loving as well. That is one of the characteristics that he wants to develop in you. Also, he says that it should be in knowledge and depth of insight. So he wants us not only to be a loving person, but he also wants to transform us in our thinking by helping us grow in knowledge and understanding. Now, I think it's easy for some people to sort of think of knowledge and understanding and insight as something that only Christian scholars do. But one thing that Paul says is that you you can't have true biblical love without actually being knowledgeable about what God says. Because even in our best and most sincere attempts to love people, sometimes we are misguided and can actually harm people. Think about the mom who lets her 30 year old son sleep in the basement and live there even though he has no ambition for his life and doesn't have a job. She truly believes that she's trying to help out her son, and yet she's harming him by enabling his laziness. And in the same way, we may be sincere in our love for people, but if we don't have insight, if we don't have biblical knowledge, then we may be misguided in trying to help people. So it's important for us to gain understanding and knowledge that we are able to discern the truth. That's one of the things that God really wants to develop in you. Christians should stand out by contrast to the growing anti-intellectualism that is in our culture. We should be able to discern truth from falsehood. We should be knowledgeable. You know, you think about our culture today and anybody can jump on the internet and put out some nutty conspiracy theory or some false information and it's guaranteed that millions of people are going to believe that. And it's really a shame that Christians are falling into the same thing. Christians should be knowledgeable. They should be well-read. They should be able to discern truth from falsehood. And in doing so, we will be able to Help people out because we're educated. We understand how to help people. Now, you'll often see people dichotomize love and truth. Some people will say, well, I'm just sort of into like loving people and I'm not really into like studying the Bible or learning deep theology. That's like for scholars. Other people will say, well, I'm not really a people person. I worship God in the library. That's impossible. We don't see that kind of dichotomy in Scripture at all. What does Paul say to his his friend Timothy in 1 Timothy? He says, the goal of our instruction is love. Right? Think about what he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 3. He says, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but I don't have love, I am nothing. And yet in the same breath... The author of Hebrews is able to say if you don't know the truth of God in a deep way, then you are in a perpetual state of spiritual infancy. You see, truth without love is nothing more than out-of-touch intellectualism. Whereas love without truth is nothing more than superficial sentimentality. And he says that it's so that Notice the order of operation. So that you can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. The order of operation matters here. If we aim at becoming pure and blameless and righteous, we're really aiming for something and are being misguided in our attempts to grow with God. It's as we love people and grow in our knowledge of what God says about us and about the world that we actually are transformed morally. That's the way that it works. Now you might think, that just seems like two different ways of saying the same thing. I mean, if if the outcome is to become righteous and pure, then what's the point? Well, let me show you how order of operations matters, okay? I like math. I'm Asian, just saying, right? Look at this. 4 plus 5 times 3 equals 27. Wrong. Okay? The order of operations is multiplication. You have to prioritize that over subtraction and addition. The correct answer is 19. Some of you are like, wow, I need to go back to school. (laughs) So the order of operation matters. It's as we love people, as we devote ourselves to what God has to say, and and we allow his truth to transform our minds, that over time, our actions, our lives start to change. Think about what Paul says in Romans 13, verse 9 and 10. He says, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. He says, all of these are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself, because love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. One of the amazing things about devoting yourself to loving others is the fact that by loving people, you're not going to harm them. And so, by by devoting yourself to love and all knowledge and all insight, we're able to see real change in our lives. Let's draw a few conclusions. I think, first of all, God wants to do a good work in your life. That is a fact. And the question you need to ask yourself, first of all, is, will you let him begin? Some of you have never invited God into your life to start this change process. And like I mentioned at the very beginning, it's very simple. This process starts... With you receiving Christ into your life. And when you do that, there's a new influence that enters into your life, the Holy Spirit, who starts to work in you and through you. So I would challenge you if you've never done that, God wants more than anything to have a relationship with you, but also to change you. Secondly, will you participate with Him as He completes this work? Here's the deal. God is not going to just drag you along whether you like it or not in this process. He actually wants you to participate. And so he's going to ask you, are you willing to put in the hard work of trying to serve people? Are you willing to put in the hard work of devoting yourself to biblical truth so that you can understand what God has to say, not only about your life, but about other people's lives as well? to transform your entire view of reality. And here's the thing. God is not going to just change your life if you just fold your arms and refuse to do anything. He wants a willing participant. Finally, will you believe that God can make something good out of you? For some of you, the answer is actually no. And you might be saying to yourself... You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what others have done to me. You don't know how many times I've failed in my life. And you're right, I don't. I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know who you are. I don't know your life experience. And yet, God does know all of those things. He is the ultimate optimist and realist. He knows about all of your problems, all the things that you face in life, and yet he promises that he can transform your life. And the question is, are you willing to believe what he says about you? Are you willing to believe his promises? You say that we are your masterpiece and that we've been created in Christ Jesus uh, to perform good works that you have uh, set out for us in advance. It's an amazing promise that we are your masterpiece. A lot of times we look in the mirror and we don't see a masterpiece. We see a lot of problems. And yet you're able to see beyond that and are able to see the finished work that you're going to complete in us. And we look forward to that, that year after year, decade after decade, that you're going to change us and that we will become more like Jesus. And we finally look forward to the day when we can come into your presence and that you will transform us in an instant to become just like your son. We thank you for that in his name, amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.